Open the precious Word of God, please, with me, to Job chapter 18. Job chapter 18. Bildad, the Shuhite, told Job and by recorded scripture tells us about a king. And I want to tell you today that our king has destroyed Bildad's king. And let's have fun in the task. I don't use that word very much because remember, young people, when I was 12, I swore off fun. But I want us to have pleasure in the Word of God. And here's how we're going to go about it. We're going to start right here with a king that is out to get each of us. And he thinks he gets all of us, but we know better. Because we have Psalm 49 that comes a little after Job 18. I want to take up reading some very serious words in the 11th verse. And I want to read down through the end of the chapter about Bildad describing the wicked. David gave us a few indications of it in the 49th Psalm. Let's let Job by the Holy Spirit, or Bildad in the book of Job, by the Holy Spirit, open those words up a little bit and let us hear how terrible this king is And it's death. And he's called the king of terrors. Men fear death because there is a king of terror chasing them. And he will get them by the just, holy law of God. But we have another king and we shall make him the emphasis of this sermon. Beginning at verse 11, speaking of the wicked, terrors shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. He cannot rest or relax. His strength shall be hunger bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side to destroy him. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. It shall dwell in his tabernacle because it is none of his. Brimstone shall be scattered upon his habitation. His roots shall be dried up beneath, and above shall his branch be cut off. His remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the street. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He shall neither have son nor nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. 
They that come after him shall be astonished at his day, as they that went before were affrighted. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What a book we have, what a library we have called the Holy Scriptures with 66 books, Job being one of them, and it's wonderful language used by Job and his three friends, and then the only one that knew what was really happening in the book of Job, the young man Elihu that finishes up the book with God's own declarations by himself. We're thankful, Heavenly Father, for the library of divine scripture that gives us perfect wisdom and understanding of things the world knows nothing about. I've been preaching a series of messages to you entitled, He is Altogether Lovely. In the Lord's timing, that would be my mother's favorite series, whether she heard it or not. It would just be the topic, and the theme of it would be her favorite. I didn't pick it because of knowledge of timing. I picked it because the Lord convicted me of it. But I've been working through that series and having great pleasure with you in describing the Lord Jesus Christ by comparing him to what would be a perfect man. And we've looked at men by many different measures, and we exalt a measure of a man as high as we can take it and find out that he still comes far short of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we took as our leave to do so, Psalm 45, verse 2, first part, where it says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. And unless we learn what the best man looks like or acts like, how can we compare Jesus Christ to him? So we've done it. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, it says he's the chiefest of 10,000. Well, by what measure is he chiefest? We want to find as many as we can. And that's what we've been doing. It's important for us, in light of my mother's funeral and memorial service that we're going to keep in a little while, to consider our lives in their entirety. The king of terrors has been brought upon us by our first father, Adam. And don't blame him too much. Because you'd have sinned faster and worse if you'd have been there. Because you've proved it your whole life long. We all have. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And so don't you sit there and pretend that you're that one that the Bible tells us there isn't one such. Death is certain, death is destructive, death is final, it's horrible, it initiates eternity, and it's fully unavoidable. Without the 15th verse of Psalm 49, the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our marital relationships and all our relationships have a certain destructive end. Death. How much do you love your mother this morning? She's going to be taken away from you. You'll never get to tell her you love her again. How much do you love a child? You're going to be taken away from that child in the ordinary course of things, or that child's going to be taken away from you, and you will never get to tell them that you love them again, and your love will mean nothing to them because you and they will disappear. 
Death ends it all, and we chose death rather than life. God gave us paradise. We could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever in the Garden of Eden and walked and talked with God daily in the cool of the evening, but we chose sin instead. And so we have the consequences, and today we shall remember the consequences, but more than that, we're going to remember that we have a Savior who has delivered us from the consequences that we and our first father, far more able than we, brought upon us. I have been pursuing the thought that the Bible gives us, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, that we are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. He is the husband, we are the wife. We are spouses. I've been pursuing that. And we want to consider it today. This sermon will be part of the series, He is Altogether Lovely. Because I want to deal with the thought of death and what it does to relationships and death and what it does to our marriage that is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and what a difference it is. What a difference. You know, every aspect of an earthly man compared to Jesus Christ has blessed our hearts at the great chasm between the two. But I'm going to lay one on you that is glorious today. What will Jesus do? His Father arranged a marriage for Him before the world began to sin-cursed, death-cursed creatures. What's Jesus going to do with such a spouse that is cursed to die? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that he's got an answer. Amen. And it's a glorious one, a complete one, and a thorough one. Death is a certainty. You were appointed to die, and there's no discharge in this war. You like that? You like the sound of that little text? Ecclesiastes 8 and 8. You know, men, when their lives are at risk, and they're laboring for a nation to protect its whatever, when they're in the field of conflict and in harm's way, serious harm's way, They wait for that day of discharge, but there is no discharge in this war. Verse 8 tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. There's no doctor that can keep it in you. There's no human love that can keep it in you. There's no mental power that can keep it in you. There's no vitamin at GNC that can keep it in you. There's no power to keep the spirit and to retain it. In verse 8, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war. The war that we have against death, there is no discharge. It is going to take us all down. Some men get discharged, and they get to come home to ticker tape parades. Not, Not this one. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Ecclesiastes 8 and 8. Your earthly marriage, I have one. Most of you have one. Your earthly marriage and every other relationship, brother, sister, uncles and aunts, grandparents, friends, friends that you love as your own soul are all going to end. No matter how tender they are, they're all coming to an end. Because of death. Death is feared. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. The fear of death is a universal phenomenon that is grounded in guilt and superstition. 
God has declared enough that they are without excuse, according to Romans chapter 1. And so there's fear of His great power and Godhead that is going to be brought to bear on them. They can talk all they want to about heresies to try to escape meeting God after death. But they're still afraid. As I mentioned, former colleagues amused me by their terror of death taking down one of their own. The wicked rightly fear death, for their judgment's going to be with great terror. Look at Hebrews 2.15, speaking of why Jesus Christ came and why He came the way He came. To deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The fear of death has been the meal ticket for religious hucksters from the beginning. If you can get a person afraid of dying, and then you can show them how to avoid it, how to have 72 virgins under palm trees in some so-called heaven, you can get them to strap a bomb to themselves or their babies. The fear of death. Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death. And I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that He delivered my mother from the fear of death and He's delivered our family from the fear of her death. We know where she is and we know that she's been delivered. And we know that King Jesus has defeated the King of Terrors. She's with King Jesus right now. She's laughing and rejoicing in the presence of God, that though her body is sleeping, her spirit is well alive, and it's not seeing corruption, because it is with the Lord Jesus. And we're thankful for that. To make death tolerable, there are so many heresies that have been invented. There's the heresy of annihilation. The Jehovah's Witnesses, and they don't deserve the name, so we'll call them what they should be called, Russellites, have the doctrine of annihilation. When you die, it's all over. Your soul is extinguished. Your spirit is extinguished. There's nothing left of you. There is no eternal punishment. There is no eternal reward except for their 144,000 and whoever else they'll let into the kingdom as they describe it. Annihilation. That's nice to make death tolerable. You know, when we die, it's all over. But the Bible doesn't teach such a thing. It is appointed unto men once to die. And then it has these, these words that, that don't make Charles Taze Russell look very good. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. Oh, <laughs> yes. When the Apostle Paul got to spend some time with a governor of the Roman Empire, he reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And when he reasoned of righteousness and showed that governor how short of it he was, and of temperance, self-discipline, which that Roman governor didn't have enough of, and that eternal judgment was going to come upon that Roman government, Roman governor, what does it say that governor did? He trembled. Because the apostle, our brother, put the king of terrors right in his face. Paul would say about his preaching method, knowing therefore... The terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul told about the king of terrors, I tell you about the king of terrors, but I tell you about King Jesus, lest you get discouraged in the first few minutes here. You know, they've come up with reincarnation. Do you know how intelligent reincarnation is? 
in order to avoid the terror of death, in order to avoid that king of terrors chasing them out of existence, they come up with the doctrine of reincarnation. We get to come back as something else. So we're always living. You know, this, this time, I'm a man. Next time, I'm going to be a cow. Next time, I'm going to be a bug. I don't believe in annihilation. I believe in reincarnation. Well, you sweet thing. You're so wise. All you've done is multiply the number of times you've got to die. They're idiots. That's the kindest word I should say in this pulpit. They number in the billions. We'll have dominion over them in the morning, whether they're a cow, a bug, or a man. Praise God, I love His truth, and we're never going to soft sell it or varnish it. We're going to declare it the way it is. It's a lie. Universalism is the most popular theological change in America today. This is how they get rid of death. We're all going to be saved. God is so loving, and it comes from Arminian theology, where the only thing people know is God is love. That's all they get out of the Bible is three words. They've never read the book. They don't know the God of heaven. And so they've come up with a theology called universalism. Billy Graham doesn't believe there's a burning hell anymore. Let me tell you, when he started in 1949 in Los Angeles, you can go Google or YouTube that and watch his preaching. He believed in a burning hell. The most popular doctrine today that is sweeping the churches that's a change is universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. God is too good. God is too kind to send anyone to hell. They never want to talk about God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And we are wicked, rebellious sinners. And we deserve hell. And all the Bible declares about it. So they come up with that. Well, we blow it all out. It's a lie after a lie lie. The truth is, we have been delivered from death, and we don't need to be afraid of it, because we've got King Jesus on our side. We've got a counselor, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who's going to save us from the judge because he's the judge's son, and the judge sent his son to suffer every bit of our punishment in our place so that he doesn't have to condemn us. And he looks in the law books and makes a new entry. That we have the perfect righteousness of His Son. That is called justification. It's just as if we had never sinned. And it's just as if we were as perfectly righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ. I have had to tell my mother a few thousand times over the last 40 years. That I'm sorry forever causing her any grief or pain as a disobedient, dishonoring, rebellious, shame-producing, disgraceful, disgusting son. But you all know where I stand before God, don't you? I'm as good of a son to Rowland and Marie Crosby in the sight of God as Jesus of Nazareth was to Joseph and Mary because I stand before God in His righteousness and so do you. Amen. What is life? What's the nature of an earthly life? You know how we got it? God took some clay, and we're going to have some clay delivered here in the next 90 minutes. God took some clay, the dust of the earth, 
and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, you're going to see that clay with the breath of life out of its nostrils. They've tried to make her look like my mother. But my mother had a decent amount of breath in her nostrils. It used to come out of her eyes. A lot of love, excitement, but there isn't any there because her love and excitement is where it ought to be. Her breath, her spirit, her ghost, all Bible words, is in another place. And if it were to be attached to eyeballs right now, human eyeballs aren't good enough to express what is happening to her spirit. This body has to be changed to absorb the pleasures of heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That place that we are going is so far superior to this stinking carcass that God has to change it. Amen. And her spirit is right now on honeymoon with her husband. And she's going to settle down into eternal life with him with a resurrected body shortly. But I get ahead of myself. Shame on me. James 2.26 tells us that the body without the spirit is dead. We believe in man having several different parts. He has a body. All it is is clay. It's 70% water. It's just a, it's just a self-contained bag of water that's contained in a bag of skin. It's like a water balloon. Except it's got a little bit more substance than the skin of a balloon. It's got a few bones in it, a little bit of meat, but it's mostly water. And as soon as that water comes out of it, it turns more and more like clay. But we have a spirit. And God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And Sadducees, even in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, wanted to get rid of that spirit. And so they didn't believe there was a spirit or angels or a resurrection. And how did Jesus correct their heresies? By using an italicized word in your King James Bible from the book of Exodus, chapter 6. Jesus made reference to God speaking to Moses, saying these words. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been dead for some time. Hundreds of years in the case of Abraham. But God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. And when Jesus makes that argument in Matthew chapter 22, he bases his whole argument on one two-letter word, am. I am is the present tense of the verb to be. I am. In the days of Moses, I am the God of Abraham, because Abraham is alive and doing well in my presence. And my presence, because he's my friend, has been named Abraham's bosom. That's life and death. Death is the spirit leaving our body. 
It lives inside this body for 70 years or so. And then it departs to be with the Lord. Or it departs to hell, fire, like the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Look at Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. Let's talk just a moment about the nature of this thing. What's happened? I want our children to all understand this. This body that I'm in and this, the body you're in is just a house for your spirit. It's just a clay thing. I mean, without the spirit in it, it's shocking. The eyeballs have no life. You know, you, that's why they go around and pull eyelids down. Because who wants to look at lifeless eyeballs? Right. I mean, it's like two seedless grapes are now on your head, painted brown or blue. They're the windows of our soul. Isn't that what we call them? The windows of our soul, you can see love. You can see acceptance. You can see intensity. You can see desire from them. But when it's gone, it's because it's all back to clay and there's no animating spirit in it. But that spirit hasn't ceased existing. That spirit is somewhere else and that spirit is what God relates to because God is a spirit. Oh, God is a spirit. And so we don't need these things to relate to Him but God's going to give these things back to us all changed so that we can enjoy all the pleasures of heaven forever. He's going to put in the shade all the pleasures of this world. Right. It's amazing that we will fight for the pleasures of sin for a season and give up the waiting a few short months and years for the pleasures of righteousness and the pleasures of God's presence forever. And ever. Look at Genesis chapter 25 and verse 8. Let's look at the namesake of paradise or Abraham's bosom. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 8. Then Abraham gave up the ghost. Yes, we do. We believe in ghosts. If the Bible says Abraham gave up the ghost, we believe in ghosts. Well, what's a ghost in the Bible? Let's make it this simple. The Holy Spirit is also called the Holy Ghost. So ghost just means spirit. Abraham gave up the ghost or his spirit and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Don't forget those words. He was gathered to his people. Death is nothing but a family reunion for you to go home and be with all the saved of your nation, tongue, tribe, and people. Look at Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. Death becomes exciting when we understand it right. That's why David said in Psalm 49, Wherefore should I fear? Even, even in a sentence about the iniquity of his heels compassing him about. Did Jesus have some iniquity get to his heel? Oh, yes, he did. Satan brought our sins against him and it was a heel wound. But our Lord Jesus Christ brought a few things against Satan and it was a a headshot or a head wound. One's fatal. One's just an irritant. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is poor Rachel. But she wasn't all that poor if we understand it rightly. Verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath and Rachel travailed and she had hard labor. You ladies... You be thankful to the God of heaven that you haven't had a labor like this or you wouldn't be sitting here. I'm sorry for your hard labors. 
Verse 17, it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. She already had Joseph, and it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. When we leave a marker in a cemetery, we're still doing something scriptural. Her soul departed. The spirit soul part of her left her. That's what death was. Her body was behind. They buried it and put a marker. Rachel's body's here. But notice what it said. Her soul was departing. That's all death is. It's you take a trip. You take a trip without this carcass. This carcass gets tired in a seat going from Newark to Singapore. And this carcass isn't looking forward to that. It's not big enough. That is the seat. I didn't mean the carcass. But brethren, there's a ticket been purchased. And you're going to depart and you're going to take a trip. That's all it is. To another place. And so it describes it as departing. He gave up the ghost. He was gathered to his fathers. That it, now, when they buried him, he wasn't gathered to his fathers. His fathers were in cemeteries 500 miles away or 300 miles away in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham died in the land of Canaan. When he was gathered to his people, his spirit was gathered to Seth. And Noah and Enoch and his people, the spirits of just men made perfect that Hebrews 12 tells us about. And they're having a continual family reunion. They don't run out of KFC. They're constantly celebrating in the presence of God. All their needs are supplied and provided by the riches of glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Simeon said? Oh, old man Simeon, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know, God had told Simeon, you're not going to die till you see the Lord Christ. So is that a nice proposition? Amen. You don't die until you see Christ. That's, is that win-win? Yes. That means once I see Him, I get to die? Does that mean I won't die till I get to see Him? That's just, that's just beautiful news. And He held that baby Jesus. Now, Lord, let Thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. I have seen the one that is going to hang on the cross for me. I can go in peace. Let me depart. I don't want to be down here anymore. Let me hand this baby back to its mother and let thy servant depart. Notice what death is called. A departure. Ten days ago on a Thursday night, my mother departed. You know, I asked the Lord to let me hear the chariot. I was a little foolish, maybe, a little greedy, maybe, and don't, don't laugh at me too hard, and please keep it silent. But I asked the Lord if maybe the mini blinds would rattle or something, but He wants me to live by faith, not by sight. Right. So I'm back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, walking by faith and not by sight. 
I'd heard too many stories from family members about righteous ancestors of mine being carried away with a chariot and God allowed a curtain to be pulled back enough in their view to hear the departure. Whether it's true or not, I don't care that they heard it or not because I know it's true whether they heard it or not. When an animal's spirit leaves its body, it goes straight down to the ground. It's nothing. It's not immortal. We have a spirit that's going to live forever. It's either going to live in the pleasure of God or under the punishment and judgment of God. Job philosophized about life in several places and said it ends everything. Timothy was told by Paul, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we shall carry nothing out. And we read that in Psalm 49. Death ends everything we know, so that while we are alive, we are to be applying ourselves with all the energy that we can in the things that God has put before us. Look at that book of philosophy again in the Bible. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon the preacher. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The nature of earthly things. They're temporal. They're short, and they're all over when you die. It's ended. So let's not put our stock in them. I once had a pretty car, and my brother-in-law sitting up there in the second row on your right said, that car's got a hot future. And you know what he meant? The Lord is going to melt it with fervent heat. Amen. According to Second Peter chapter 3. I've always appreciated that. And I appreciated him for reminding me of that. He must have seen me looking at it with the windows of my soul saying too much about my soul. And at that time in my life, my, the windows of my soul were saying too much about my soul. Thank you. You just make sure you remember it as well. We both like too many ponies. Look at this. Verse 4. To him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. While you're still alive, there's hope. Even if there's not much strength, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, the, the preacher knows how to get to the point, doesn't he? For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their memories, their rewards, it's all gone. And so this chapter goes on to tell us how we ought to live. Verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, because that's all you get her for. You're not going to be married in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. Please. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. And angels don't marry. Angels are all male. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, because it's vain to be down here in these bodies which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. Your marriage only extends as long as, the, as long as you're living under the sun. When we're living above the sun, marriage doesn't exist. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. It is a pleasure. It is a great pleasure to have a companion of the opposite sex that goes through all of life with us. And we're, spe- we're so specifically talking about men with their wives. They're a reward for our labor, to work hard for our wives and to share with them the reward of that labor. It's our portion in this life. Right. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do with thy might. We are to be living with passion and zeal and diligence in whatever God's put in front of us to do. And it tells us why. 
For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Where you're going, this part of you, there's no job to do. There's no grass to cut. There's no clothes to mend. There's nothing to do. So, while you've got this thing still functioning, and the Lord gives you something to do, do it with your might. Because it's all going away. And that's how a Christian ought to live. They love their wife because it's a wonderful relationship God gave to them in this world. And they love to work hard because it's something God gave them to do in this world. The nature of all relationships end once we leave under the sun, once we leave this life, once we pass out of this portion, marriage is over. And you all know that, and you all declared it. You all stood before God and witnesses and said about your marriage, I will love you and cherish you and look on no other like you. In riches or in poverty, in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, I am yours and you are mine. And I will love you till death do us part. If we think of the greatest man that we can think of, a created man of our imagination, in order to compare the Lord Jesus Christ to this perfect man, he's of absolutely no value after death. You can think of the richest man with the greatest accomplishments, greatest intellect, the greatest communication ability that loves you in an incredibly great degree and has paid enormous dowry for you and is of perfect moral character. You can think of all the things that you want, but after death, he is of zero value to you. And so we say till death do us part. The greatest man on earth is reduced by death to be equal to the least man on earth. Low and high, rich and poor, all come together at the funeral home and the cemetery. Lovers can promise, do you know how, this is how they do it. Have you ever heard this? I will love you forever. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? What a joke. Because it ends. In that sense, these bodies end. Till death do us part. That isn't a joke. And that's stuck in most marriage covenants because it's till death. You know, your love for your spouse in heaven, the Lord doesn't tell us much about it, but you're going to love all the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and you're not going to be married in heaven. They don't marry in heaven. The whole issue was the Sadducees trying to confound our Lord Jesus Christ about a marital situation and what it would be like in heaven. They will be your sisters and your brethren and together we're going to be the family of God and we're all going to be called the sons of God. The Bible doesn't tell us more details than that and I don't need to give that to you. All you know that it's too good for Paul to tell you about it and it's too good for these bodies to be able to absorb it. So it's going to be wonderful. It is far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here in this world with a spouse. They can promise eternal devotion and love to each other all they want. But it's till death do us part, and those words are true. We may say that in sickness or in health, I'll be there. I watched a father be there in sickness. 
years. But now he can't be there. But my mother has remarried. You don't mind, do you? She's married to the Lord Jesus Christ. She has been since she was about 15 years old or so in her understanding. But she's married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something, brethren. This is how good the gospel is. Death do us part. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Anywhere else you want to read in the Bible, your marriage ends. But till death do us part, does that apply to our relationship with Jesus Christ? My wife wanted me to entitle this sermon, Till Death Do Us Start. (laughs) Do you like that, brother? Yes. Is that the gospel? Till death do us start. We don't get cranking with the Lord Jesus Christ until we die. We don't get to see Him face to face. You want to call a marriage something special when you can't see your spouse face to face? When all you've got is a picture of writing in words? Death brings us face to face with Him. Till death do us start. What a difference. And so in this comparison between being married to a perfect man in this world and our marriage to Jesus Christ, when it comes to death, death ends this one and all of his affection, all of his economic power, all of his comforting graciousness and tenderness, all of it disappears. And this comes into full-orbed beauty till death do us start. Oh yes, Roland and Marie will reconnect in heaven. But they're both going to love the Lord Jesus Christ and be delighting in Him instead of delighting in each other like they did here. It was live joyfully with thy wife of thy youth down here. Up there they're going to be joyfully with all other saints loving the Lord Jesus Christ. This gets me so excited. (laughs) No matter how much you give or take in a relationship, death is going to reduce your marriage to nothing. It's over. It's a thing of this life. Remember, it's just Bible words. Don't get mad at me. I have a wife, and I promised I would love her forever. But Jesus said that He would love us forever. And I will never forsake you. Thank you, Lord. Instead of being ended by death, our marriage to Jesus Christ is enhanced by death. What can we say to such truth? What do we say to it? The thing feared most is the best event with Him. In this loving relationship, when we see a spouse getting sick and the warmth of the embraces and the affection of the eyes and the expressions of the mouth deteriorate and disappear, there's a Savior in heaven waiting that we get to hear all those things in full freshness right. when we're in His presence. And it's far better than being here. I read some of these things in Scripture, Father, and they're so precious and such a blessing, such power and such beauty. Like Psalm 49 and verse 15, God shall redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for He shall receive me. Amen. But it's going to be far better when He's actually receiving me. When we actually see the Lord Jesus Christ, and it doesn't get started until we die. Now, are you all ready to sing How Sweet to Die? Well, we should believe that song when we sing it. David would ask, 
Wherefore should I be afraid in the days of evil? When I'm starting to get sick and approaching my deathbed, why should I be afraid? Paul knew Jesus better on earth than any of us, but do you know what he said about it? Paul walked with Jesus Christ on earth better than any of us. But he said to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Wow. To depart this life means that our earthly marriage is over and a heavenly marriage enters into a honeymoon phase. Please allow my weak analogy. We are arranged to marry our Lord Jesus Christ now. But when our spirits are in His presence, we are, being, we are starting to enjoy the personal, intimate fellowship that we do not have down here. Paul said so. It's far better to depart and to be with Christ. But then we're going to get our bodies for the full-orbed, complete spectrum of pleasure that Jesus Christ, our husband, is able to pour out upon us. But until we have that body, we can't fully enjoy the inheritance of the saints in light. Death gets us started in that relationship, and the world doesn't teach any of this. You can go to school and acquire any degree of knowledge you want and get any amount of wisdom and understanding you want in the things of this world, and they do not know anything about this. This is sacred truth that is conveyed in churches like this around the world for the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to lay hold of by faith and to embrace them and to live in light of them and to be with Him at the moment of death. Face-to-face get started with the Lord Jesus Christ. We may sorrow and cry for spouses at a time of death, but there's no sorrow or crying in heaven. The Bible tells us so. Dinners for two all end down here, but there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb over there. Sin's, sin's pleasures are but for a season down here, but over there the pleasures are forevermore. Psalm 16 and verse 11. The fear and pain of losing an earthly spouse brings anxiety and worry, but the relationship with Jesus Christ becomes much more personal at the time of death, and should bring pleasure to our souls. Our husband has made death good, so good that David would write, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When our Father God is able to embrace us in His presence in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, death becomes a precious thing. Death is precious. It ends our corruptible bodies. Death ends all the frustration, the temptation, the vanity and vexation of life. He saves us. And He fulfills the purpose and intent of His creation and redemption of us. And it's never going to occur until it's perfect timing with Him. It's all precious, which means it's rare. It's of great value. Solomon wrote that there is hope in the death of the righteous. Because you're going to escape your flesh, your sin-cursed body, and you're going to be in heaven with Jesus, who ought to be the person that is the most important to you in heaven or in earth. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The man Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer, should be the most important person to all of us. We get to be with Him. What trouble would you go through to be with a person that you loved here? Well, all you've got to do is give up the ghost to be with that person over there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Just give up your spirit. We told mother, relax. Relax. Go to sleep, mommy. Go to sleep. Run to Jesus. He will embrace you in his arms. And we told her. And we told her. We told her. We'll be together forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. So certain is all of this that death is sleeping in Jesus. And those of you that quizzed yesterday from John chapter 11, you know that our brother Lazarus sleepeth. Even though he'd been dead four days, he sleepeth. His body was sleeping. His spirit wasn't sleeping. We do not believe in soul sleep like Seventh-day Adventist heretics. Our soul and spirit doesn't sleep. It's in the presence of the Lord. To be sleeping and not knowing anything is not far better. Paul said to be with Christ was far better. John could give us the message, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Balaam would say, Oh, that I could die the death of the righteous. Oh, poor Balaam. He's hired by Balak, king of Moab, to stand on a mountain and curse Israel. And he looks out there and God fills his mouth with such good things. And he starts speaking about God making Israel as the sand by the seashore and how they're going to rule over Moab. Do you know how that would have hurt if you were Barak? You're out a bunch of cash. And then he said, Oh, that I might die the death of the righteous because he saw in those chosen people of God that they had a kind of death far different than everyone, especially everyone in Moab. You know what the Moabites did? They offered their children in sacrifice to devils. Is that the fear of death? When you would sacrifice your child, something is driving you to insanity. Because the devil's religion is insane. Isaiah said that people don't stop and consider when the righteous die, that they're being delivered from so much trouble, and that when they get to where they're going, Isaiah 57, 1 through 2, they shall rest in their beds and be at peace. You know, God once put a a flaming cherubim up to keep the way of the tree of life so that you couldn't get to it through your first parents. When God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, He put flaming cherubim, mighty angels of His, on that path or street or road to keep the tree of life so that Adam and Eve couldn't get to it. But I'll tell you where the tree of life is right now. Mommy is seeing it. And she gets to eat from the fruit of it and live forever. It's in heaven. It's in paradise of God. It's there. There's no flaming cherubim except standing all around that glorious place to protect us that we can keep right on eating forever from the tree of life. And it bears its fruit in its seasons. The book of Revelation tells us all this. No wonder Solomon said, the greatest book of philosophy ever written, Ecclesiastes, he said in chapter 7 and verse 1, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Have I said enough to help you believe that? Amen. You know, we have birthdays. Every, what, what do we celebrate birthdays for? Why doesn't somebody hold the first little party to celebrate their death day? We do. Every time we come into this house and we sing How Sweet to Die, which we shall do today, be preparing yourself so that you can sing it with full meaning and understanding. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Brethren, death is necessary in order for a seed to be planted in the ground, unless you take a seed, that little tiny seed, and put it in the ground and let the moisture and the earth around it 
dissolve it. And so its particles begin a process of regeneration of a new plant or generation of a new plant. You can't get the new plant unless you put the seed in the ground. We're going to put a seed in the ground today. It's going to be the body of my mother, the body of my father's wife, and the body of my brother's mother and my sister's mother. And I want all my grandchildren to know, and I want everyone else in this house to know, that we're going to plant her like good Baptists all the way under. And a plant's going to come out of that ground that isn't going to look anything like the seed. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Paul wasn't very nice because he shouldn't be, to some fool at Corinth that said, if there's a resurrection of the body, what does their body look like? You fool. 1 Corinthians 15, go read it for yourself. The body that comes from a seed doesn't look anything like the seed. Just get that settled in your mind. God has celestial bodies. He has terrestrial bodies. He has glorious bodies and powerful bodies. We're going to sow something in weakness. My mother won't be able to raise her arm when you see her in a few minutes. My mother won't be able to lift her eyelids when you see her in a few minutes. But I tell you, there's a day coming where she's going to have full power. She's not going to need those hearing aids that are going to enhance her hearing ability. She's not going to need spectacles to enhance her vision. She's going to be raised incorruptible in power and glory. It's nothing. We put a little tiny seed in the ground and people who live on real farms in places like Iowa know that when you put a real seed in the ground, up comes a corn stalk that doesn't look like the seven-footers in South Carolina. They're 10 to 14. And there's 800 kernels hanging off of one ear and there's a great tassel at the top and there's a stalk that a small child could wrestle with from one little kernel of corn. We're going to put a seed in the ground. Death is departing out of this house, and the Lord's going to give us a new house. Made in heaven, made by God Himself, this body will be recreated. Peter said that his death was a departure. Paul said his death was a departure. To depart and to be with Christ is far better. Death is a free ticket purchased at the expense of the life of the Son of God for you to travel from this corruptible state, this corruptible world, into the presence of an incorruptible kingdom of God in heaven above. Paul knew that if he left his body, he'd be instantly with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our Lord Jesus Christ left his body, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His spirit didn't go to hell. That's somebody who's reading the Apostles' Creed instead of the Apostles' Epistles. And there's a big difference between the two. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And paradise wasn't Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Paradise was in the presence of God. The thief's spirit was there. His body was on earth in a common grave. And Jesus' spirit was there. And his body was in the grave of a rich man. When resurrection takes place, the spirit goes back into the body. And the two of them are joined together again. You know, Elisha once stretched himself upon a child, and the spirit came into him again and he revived. Spirit came back into the body, and the body comes back to animation. Because that's what our existence is. The Lord Jesus came back into his body, and it got animated. And though they had locked the door for for fear of the Jews... 
that Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be unto you. His body was changing. And the next time John saw it after 40 days on earth, he fell at his feet as dead. And you will too when you see him. May it be with glorious rejoicing and worship, not in fear and terror of the judgment he's going to pour upon you. Like the devils that met him in the Gadarene. What's Abraham's bosom? It's paradise. What's paradise? It's the third heaven. How do you know that? Just compare Luke 16 to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and you can learn all that. Where are you going to be at the moment of your death? Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 that you ought to give all diligence to making your calling and election sure. How do you do that? It tells us right there in that passage. You had faith given to you by God. If you believe the things of the gospel, it makes you such an exception to the human race. It shows the power of God in your life, causing you to believe things that everyone else thinks are foolishness. You have obtained faith through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to add to your faith virtue. You are to add to your virtue knowledge. You are to add to your knowledge godliness. You are to add to your godliness temperance patience, brotherly kindness, and charity. And if you do these eight things, you shall never fall. We don't believe in salvation by works. We believe in works proving salvation. And it says you can make your calling and election sure. And you know what Peter wrapped it up by saying? He said that if you do these things, you shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To anyone who knew Marie Crosby, she had faith. She had added to her faith virtue, to her virtue knowledge, godliness, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, and charity. She has had an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. Till death do us part. Or till death do us start. Thank you, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.